It's always an enjoyable opportunity to lift our voices together in song as we were just able to do most recently for the last few moments tonight. The excitement, the fervor, the interest, the ardor expressed in those songs is truly a fantastic thing, and it helps each of us appreciate the blessing God has given us with voice, the capability of forming words and the speech, and the music to which we can sing it. It's always an enjoyable time to lift our voices together and to offer praise and adoration to the wonderful God that made it possible. It is the case tonight, as Brother Gary mentioned earlier, that we are again blessed with visitors and certainly our membership and visitors alike. We're very thankful for each and every person that's here and it is our sincerest hope, first and foremost, that our worship is pleasing unto God and that each of us can perhaps go on our week and do that in a way that brings exaltation and glory to the very cause of the Master who died for us. Tonight, as we come to this part of our worship service and give some thought over the next few moments to a lesson from the Word of God, the title is on the wall to my left, The Bible and Physics, Part 1. And I thought we would begin a rather brief, admittedly, but a brief nonetheless series that touches upon the interplay between the Bible on the one hand and that realm of science known as physics on the other. I suppose, being that that's my career, it is a bit of a special matter to me in particular, but nonetheless one which we also find housed in the Word of God, at least as some matters are shared within it. Some introductory thoughts that touch that subject and that in fact propel us in that direction might well be these. There really is no great question, is there, but that science has arrived at and achieved a particular arena in which it occupies a very special realm in our educational system. Even from the time our youngsters are in elementary school, they are exposed to science. First grade, second grade, they are already teased with and urged to learn some of the basic aspects and features of science. By the time the middle school years arrive, now they take exact courses along with mathematics and English and the other subjects, but science is one of them. Some of them physical sciences, some of them biological sciences, but nonetheless, they already are ingrained thoroughly in the character of what science is, how it goes about its work. By the time the high school years arrive... It still is true that now there are even more advanced courses in science. And again, quite often now, as I am understanding it, the state of Tennessee has put in place where they are required to take all four years of science now, such that again, it is so appreciated that they are required to take four full years of it. All the while, as we think about those matters in science, it's still true that many careers these days in the medical field, in many other engineering fields, it is such that quite a bit more science beyond even 12th grade is required, sometimes having to do with physics, chemistry, and other matters along that line. I say all of that to say this. The president of our country and many of the others that occupy rather notable roles in government are so convinced that physics and that chemistry and biology and the sciences as they are recognized are so important that they are willing to pour literally billions of dollars a year into the funding of science, operating the National Science Foundation as well as the Department of Energy, all of which are designed to encourage and support the scientific framework of this country. It is because of all of that, though, that there are times when there are those whose career is in that area and who have gained at least some knowledge in it, 
that sometimes what they say does not harmonize with this book. Sometimes what they proclaim, in fact, almost vehemently and so strongly, it nonetheless is not in harmony with the teaching of the Word of God. And sometimes that poses problems for our students, our youngsters. It poses difficulties for those who, in fact, are called upon to learn that stuff. Tonight, I would invite us to begin, again, a brief series of lessons on physics and its relation to the Bible. Along the way, we won't get to all of it tonight, but along the way, we will mention some of the most notable things that physics teaches that do not agree with this book. And we will strive to place ourselves into the appreciation of what the Bible does say. We should not strive to go any further than that. I hope that as we do that, we'll be reminded of how great the Bible is. But all the while, we'll also be reminded of the necessity of you and me standing strong and firm in what this book has to say. We will also learn another thing or two about how comforted we can be as we give thought to things like the Big Bang Theory, when we hear things like the general theory of evolution, when we encounter matters like the so-called dark energy and black holes and other matters, and we shall touch on them as due courses through the series progresses, but all the while excited only to base the most thorough matters of our faith on the teaching of the Word of God. Tonight, as we begin this particular series, I would invite us to begin it by reviewing ever so briefly what does the Bible say about itself, especially as it relates to scientific truth. I say that very carefully because we need to be aware of that surely as our series progresses. I do want you to know that as the series proceeds, it is not my intent. In fact, it's far from it to use this pulpit as a means of teaching physics. This is not to be a physics classroom. But rather, what I do hope that it will be is a reminder on many levels of just how great God is. For when it comes to the creation... When it comes to the overall physics that operates in the world about you and me day by day, and when it comes to the appreciation of all of that, we can rest assured that it is embedded on so many levels and in so many ways in the Word of God. I hope that we will see enough evidence in Scripture to point us clearly to that conclusion. For tonight, as we begin, notice some of these thoughts about what the Bible says concerning itself. There are those... And you and I on occasion see scientists on the news, physicists on, who write articles in the newspaper and magazines and otherwise, those who have their own internet sites, who will rather openly at times almost blaspheme this book by almost laughably saying, well, it's a book of myths. It's just a joke. You shouldn't expect that modern knowledgeable science would agree with this book. This book for them is an ancient book of nothing but stories. And that is at calling it somewhat nicely as the language they sometimes use it. But as you and I think about those matters, there are of course others who very differently and in a very opposite way hold true that this book is the Word of God. And for them it must reign supreme in all matters and in all ways. The thoughts... The discoveries, the findings of science do not in fact compare with it in terms of greatness. I know I speak tonight to a group of people who feel that way. And I realize as we give thought to it, it is our considered belief that God's Word must always be supreme over the, the 
conclusions as well as the matters proclaimed as science. As you give thought to that, notice, the Bible says this about itself. It says, doesn't it, texts like these. David proclaimed in the long ago, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. 2 Samuel 23, 2. Those words, again, were written roughly at this point some 3,000 years ago. And as David so beautifully and buoyantly proclaimed them in no uncertain words, he stated that that which he wrote and that which he uttered was in fact the very words of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. Didn't God to Jeremiah say, Behold, I've put my words in thy mouth? And thus when Jeremiah proclaimed what he did, Jeremiah 1 verse 9, he stated what was the absolute and thorough proclamation of the divine will of God. It was not any kind of speculation. It wasn't couched in the language of what was recognized as science in that day and time. Science has in fact proclaimed many things, as I noted earlier, that are not in agreement to this book. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and following, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That word that's translated at the beginning of verse 16, all Scripture given by inspiration of God, theotnustos, meaning of course literally breathed of God or God breathed, these precious passages, these remarkable texts, are then the absolute presentation of God's will. It's His Word. It is not His will couched in men's words. It is not His will couched in the theories of man. It's literally His Word. And we must believe it to be so. And as we believe that, notice these other verses. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, we learn there, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so it is that as you and I open the blessed pages of the Word of God, we appreciate that the Spirit of God put it in the form that we now have it. That means that in every proclamation it makes, be it geography, be it biology, be it physics, it doesn't matter. It's all correct. It is true, as you come near the bottom of that slide, that the Bible is not a physics textbook. It is not a biology textbook. It is not an astronomy textbook. But we can rest assured, given the truth that it does have within it, that whatever it says about astronomy is true. Whatever it does say about physics is true. Whatever it does say about biology is true. And thus, when we arrive at passages that touch those subjects, it gives us an even greater understanding that the one who penned it and the one who, in fact, ultimately gave that information to be penned was far greater than man. For after all, quite often, that which we know of as biology, it was written down centuries before scientists really discovered it. And the same is even true of physics. It is for all those reasons I listed at least one issue that does remind us how carefully we must appreciate the truth of the Word of God. This one happens to relate to archaeology and history. 
In the opening proclamation of Daniel chapter 5, mention is made of a king named Belshazzar. And the Bible in no uncertain terms says this man lived, this man reigned. He really was a person of antiquity who ruled over portions of the Persian Empire. However, even as late as the early part of the 1800s, there were those who absolutely said the Bible is wrong on that point. There was never anybody named Belshazzar, according to these scientists and archaeologists. In fact, there were studied scholars of ancient Persian history who quite frankly said the Bible on this point is simply wrong. And lo and behold, in 1853, the spate of the archaeologists turned up, what would you know, but an inscription that not only listed Belshazzar, but listed his father and even asserted everything that is in perfect harmony with Daniel chapter 5. The Bible was right all along. It was the scientist that was incorrect. And may we be so quick to say that that still is the order of affairs when it comes to physics when they disagree with the Bible. For all those reasons, and in that way at the very bottom, might I use that thought to prompt us to the next slide, that even though we'd agree the Bible is no science textbook, what it says in every matter of science is true. Case in point might be some of these observations. I thought it would be well for us, now that we have at least reminded ourselves of the greatness of the Word of God, to devote just a moment and remind ourselves of this arena that we have called science at this point. This subject our students are called on to study for 10, 12, 16 years or more, and all the while they're expected to master these concepts, these theories, these models of men, and they're expected to accept them as true. Well, when you and I think about science, it really comes from the Latin word scientia, that as you can well tell on that, simply means to know or to have knowledge of. And so at its most basic level, science is the pursuit of knowledge. As you appreciate that thought, and as you give consideration to it with me, there is a recognized methodology to science, the so-called scientific method, and it, it revolves around experimentation, measurement, and observation. Our students are taught that something is not accepted as true in the realm of science unless experiment has confirmed it, verified it, validated it, and supported it on many occasions with repeated experiments. They're taught that you can't accept just one experimental result. There have to be a number of them that all harmonize and converge to the conclusion of that particular theory or model. It is for that reason that you'll notice that directly helps us see that science is actually based on observation. It's actually based upon measurement. That's why the courses our students take, in science at least, have laboratories with them. They're expected to do experiments. They're expected to develop a characterization of what an experiment is and how you interpret its results. All of that has a great interest when we appreciate this. Our society has come to respect science very greatly. Just the mere mention of certain names in science, Albert Einstein, just to name one, and immediately our students perk up as if they sit at the feet of almost one that is regarded as God. 
Science occupies such a position that quite often we envision it as these gentlemen or these ladies who wear their white coats and they are in a pure search for truth and they are not in any way dissuaded by opinion, by consideration, or by speculation. I would quickly say to you that that model is not really true. Scientists also are persuaded by their own beliefs. They're persuaded by their own appreciation, their own viewpoint. They do not have blinders on. I've learned that many times over the years. It is interesting as you give thought to all of that, that science has become so respected that there are specialized fields in everything from astronomy to zoology and everything in between. And our youngsters quite often choose a career path that is directly in line of one of them and they spend a lifetime studying these issues in science. All the while, as all that is done, why don't we focus on physics for the next moment or two? Physics comes from an ancient word that means, the word is actually physica, it means the knowledge of nature. And physics is the most fundamental of the sciences. All the others build on it in one way or another. Physics presents the most basic principles, the most basic concepts, the most basic appreciation of those matters conserved and otherwise. And as chemists and biologists and others use it, they are able to thus explain the systems of our body, the systems of engines and machines and other things such as that. Physics by itself is a fascinating arena of study. But to say that it's fascinating tells us that there are many things involved in it. And even the Bible has much to say about what you and I would call physics. As we get to some of those matters, likely next time, tonight let us move a little bit more forward and give some thought to some of the issues that find their disagreement from what the Bible says to what physics proclaims. There is a raging debate that is currently ongoing in our educational system and it's currently ongoing in the universities and even at the high school level in some cases as our students are called on to read textbooks that quite frankly say things that this book does not. In fact, they encounter these precepts and these concepts and these ideas that quite frankly flatly disagree with this book. Things such as the age of the universe, the age of the earth, when the dinosaurs lived, other matters such as are there things like a big bang that started this whole universe and everything in it? The textbooks that they read present all of that typically as just a matter of fact, as if there's no disagreement to it in the slightest. But when they open this book and they read that things came into being in six days, Exodus 20 verse 11, well clearly that doesn't agree with the big bang theory. And it doesn't agree with the findings of what physics presents these days. And when they read about supposedly the dinosaurs lived at least 65 million years before the first man did, well, even a youngster realizes those two things don't agree. For this book says men and dinosaurs were here at the same time. And when they read these other matters, and they easily see the disagreement, you and I need to have answers ready. And we need to have perspectives at hand so that we can share with them what this book does say. 
and help them appreciate the proper path to follow as they are called on to face these issues in their college courses, high school courses, and otherwise. For those reasons and perhaps others, the raging debate I've listed on this slide takes us to this conception. It's the middle part of that slide. And I would ask us to note it with some care. I mentioned just a moment ago that the issue in science revolves around observation. It revolves around experiment. But yet, there quite frankly are some phenomena which are not open to continued experimentation. Consider just a moment the beginning of the universe. There is no way to redo that experiment. There is no way to turn back the clock and start it all over again. The best that we can do is to appreciate the nature of what currently is before us and look at the way the current models either do or do not harmonize with what we now see. And so you notice the scientist cannot go to a lab and create the universe and see how it worked. All he can do is test what theories and models there are. And I'd be quick to say to you, there are many ways in which that Big Bang model does not agree with what we see in the world about us today. I realize that in the newspapers we never see anything like that. And in the magazine articles we rarely, if ever, see anything like that because the evidence that is observed along that line is suppressed. Most tend to prefer not to write it because it jeopardizes their career. They won't get tenure. They may not be promoted. They may not find themselves looked upon with favor by their colleagues if they write something that doesn't agree with the Big Bang Theory or with general evolution. It's sad that it's that way. You'll notice a moment ago I did say that we often perceive scientists with their blinders on searching for truth. That's a fine ideal. It just so often doesn't work that way. Individuals at these universities and colleges know that if they don't publish enough, they won't be promoted, they won't gain their tenure, and they'll lose their job. And therefore, they write what's in harmony with the accepted theory because the journals won't publish it if they don't. You can see why the selected journals that do publish those kind of things are relatively rare, and they're relatively few. You and I can be thankful that there are, though, some scientists teaching in our universities and their, and their colleges and it otherwise, and they are firm Bible believers. They teach their students what is in harmony with the Word of God. It's just we don't hear enough about them. Thankfully, they do exist. We can appreciate their efforts. They toe a hard line, often rejected by their colleagues, often rebutted by their colleagues, and often somewhat insulted by them. But yet, onward they go holding firm and true to that which is proclaimed in the Word of God. Near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice that the correct approach to scientific knowledge begins with this book. Do we not read in Proverbs 1 verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's still one of my favorite passages, and I'm sure it is for you as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's where it must start. Knowledge not founded on the existence of God, the creative activity of Him, and also the careful working of Him in His universe is knowledge going to awry, knowledge going to stray. Many in our world have chosen to ignore that very thought. 
Maybe it's well to notice in 1 Timothy 6 verse 20, there is the oppositions of science falsely so-called. Falsely so-called. There is some things man regards as wisdom and knowledge which quite frankly is false. May we never forget that. And may we also encourage our youngsters to appreciate that truth as well. For many times what that teacher says when it relates to science is not going to be eternally true because this book says it's not true. And many times there are things that they hear about and they're urged to know from their youngsters and their further friends and companions that do not agree with this book. But God's Word is always that which is true. You'll notice in Hosea 4 verse 1, there, even in the days of the minor prophet Hosea, wasn't it he who so powerfully exhorted them of that day to know that when men choose to follow that which is not the Word of God, then they have gone astray. Verse number 6, in fact, so powerfully says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. I suspect many have been the times that a youngster was reared in a Christian home he or she went to Bible school classes many, many times over the years, every year faithfully. And then when the time came that that person graduated from high school and went off to college in some far distant place without dad and mom there to insist or at least greatly encourage, and they listened to these so-called professors who in some cases have the nerve to exactly say the Bible is a joke. The Bible is a myth. In my class, it is not accepted and you shall not give any credence to it. This professor tells you what he wants you to know and rest assured there's no Bible in it. And this youngster for the next 16 weeks is thoroughly ingrained in evolution, black hole theology, the characteristic of intelligent designs lacking in its foolishness, the nature, if you please, that goes along with the so-called Big Bang and everything that supposedly has developed since. And soon the youngster no longer attends any worship services, no longer attends any Bible services, and when he comes home for Christmas, he kindly tells Dad, Mom, I don't believe I'll be joining you today, for I don't believe in God anymore. I don't have any numbers as to how often that happens, but my suspicion is more than we'd like to believe. It is interesting that as you give thought to all of that, I hope this study over the next couple of weeks will be one that in many ways is a faith-building one for us. Because as we look at what the Bible does say about physics, and admittedly some of those matters we shall find very interesting, I hope, it does challenge us to appreciate one last slide about the station that we must adopt, the place we must accept. Those scientists that I mentioned before, if they do not operate on a premise that this book is where they must begin, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1-7. In fact, that's echoed in many times through the Psalms as well. But you'll notice if a scientist does not know the Scriptures and does not proceed on that basis, then that scientist is in fact going astray. The realm of knowledge in which he works is fanciful. It is not the truth. One of the things that I thought very interesting as I sought to prepare these notes for this lesson, 
had to do with what took place really only a couple of decades ago now. But you're well aware that this so-called evolution is so often taught in which our youngsters are told there's no God, there's no creation like you read about in the Bible. Things develop from lower animals. You are basically nothing but a glorified monkey of some sort. And as they hear about that, there was a rather famous, arguably the most famous of the evolutionary scientists of our day. He was the curator of the British Museum of Paleontology. There was one time he actually asked this question to a group of assembled paleontologists. These who supposedly ought to know the answer to this. He said, what do you know about evolution? There wasn't a single hand went up. He continued his speech and said, I know that there are many things we do not know because evolution is anti-knowledge. It's not knowledge. Needless to say, we haven't heard much about that gentleman in the last decade. My suspicion is he lost his job, but I don't know that. He finally had the nerve to ask, what has evolution taught us after all these decades of trying to ingrain it in our youngsters? The answer is nothing. You and I know the reason why is the true knowledge is in this book. And the most basic and needful knowledge is in this book. There was a day when scientists by and large did at least have a respect for the Bible. And some of the greatest scientists of the last thousand years fall in that category. Men like Robert Boyle. Men, as you can see on this slide, like Johann Kepler. The greatest astronomer of the Middle Ages. And yet, he firmly believed that what he was witnessing through the telescope of his day was the very fingerprints of the God who made it. Louis Pasteur, as I mentioned. Michael Faraday and James Maxwell. Those who set before us, quite frankly, matters that still are appreciated so richly. That cell phone that you and I use so often, were it not for Maxwell, we wouldn't have it. The characteristic of pasteurization and the safety that comes, were it not for Louis Pasteur, where would we be without that? And yet these were individuals who believed that God made all this knowledge possible and they were simply privileged to learn about it and share it with others. They were the great scientists of the era. You'll notice that list goes on to even Isaac Newton. When our engineers build bridges and skyscrapers and other structures without the laws of Newton, the characteristics that go with our learning based on them, where would we be? And yet, he was a firm believer that there was a greater mind than his who put all that knowledge in place. And he was again just privileged to learn of it and share it with others. Science, as you can see it from this lesson alone, is something that perhaps takes us back to those opening three verses in all of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and He divided the night from the day. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And with that, the greatest document ever written opens the Holy Scriptures. Over the next couple of lessons, I would hope that you and I can look at this book time and again with careful focus, quite frankly, on physics and the proclamations of it. In our next lesson, we really will cast a spotlight on the creation. 
Now, you'll notice the Big Bang, as our physicist friends like to call it, has many things in it that despite the fact we hear it as if scientists accept it as true, there are many findings in which we know it's not true. There are some evidence that we already can measure ourselves that indicate it's error. We shall use that in correspondence to this book and find out what the truth is on all those things. Again, my hope is it will be a faith-building consideration as we, over the next few Sunday evening lessons, turn our attention to the Bible and physics. For right now, why don't we bring this lesson to a conclusion and do so in these thoughts. There is a benefit to a study in science. We do want our youngsters to be knowledgeable of science so that the career paths that require it will be open to them. But we don't ever want them to be so ingrained in it and accepting of what they may be told that they lose their faith in this book. We do want them to view science correctly and to view it properly and to view it through the lens of the Holy Word of God. And if they will do that, they'll be blessed for a lifetime by seeing science as it really should be and using it in the way, in a profitable way, in their, in their own lives and in the lives of their families. As I mentioned, we as adults should help our youngsters to learn the proper placement of science, and that should prompt us to again see the Word of God as it relates to it. Please be back with us next Sunday evening, if at all you can, and let us continue this study by looking interestingly, I hope, at the features touching the very creation activities in Genesis chapter 1 and the subject of what physics sometimes has to say today. This very night, it may be that there's one or more in the audience who upon realization of the greatness of God and the station He would wish you to be realizes things are not well with your soul right now. Jesus did die for you, and no scientist can ever, despite his claims, change that fact. He did come here. He did tabernacle in the flesh, John 1.14. He did spill his blood for you and for me, and that blood is still the only way that you and I can be saved. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hebrews 9, verse 22. This very night, if you have allowed science to distract you and take you apart from the truth of the Bible... Why not come back to your first love? Put your faith again in what is bedrock, strong, and true. After all, if you try to build your life upon that which is the faulty claims of man, you're destined for misery and you're destined for failure. Didn't Jesus say that we must build our house upon the rock? Matthew 7, verses 24 through 26. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Psalm 127 verse 1. Are you building your house, your character of life, upon the proclamations of God at His Word? If not, why not make it right tonight? If we could assist you by praying for the forgiveness of sins known publicly, you having once been a faithful member, we'd be happy to do that. If you've never become a member of the body of Christ... Realize that that call is the call of the Master. It's not me. It's not even our eldership here at the Pippin Congregation. It's the Master who is calling you. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 Tonight, if you need to respond to that calling, do so in excitement and in urgency. Because if you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Master, the Son of God, and be baptized, you have been assured that God will forgive you of your sins and put you in a place housed in safety at His side. 
desiring you to walk faithfully until death. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to anyone in this audience, we'd be delighted to do so, and even to do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.